Welcome to Clean Integration, a Saluna podcast. Bitcoin, crypto, and batchable computing, could they be the keys to scaling the renewable sector? I sit down with experts to discuss the path to renewables and making them the primary and most affordable energy source. I'm John Belazier, CEO of Saluna, and your host. Bitcoin has cracked the code on some of the toughest problems in computer science. Today, the coin's decentralized system benefits over 100 million people around the world, providing financial freedom to folks all over the world who wouldn't otherwise have it. Yet we have seen a lot of negative mainstream coverage on Bitcoin's energy consumption, often positioning Bitcoin as a dirty coin and a poor use of our world's resources. I'd argue that the energy consumed by Bitcoin's network is actually an incredible use of our resources. The energy is used to secure the records of all the transactions in the network. And that security protects the assets of those 100 million people or so in a way that is tamper-proof without requiring a central party for trust. And as the team at Saluna recently covered in our curtailment white paper, Bitcoin mining and other forms of batchable compute can provide a solution to the biggest problem in renewable energy development, wasted energy, by providing flexible demand to the energy grid. Bitcoin is laying the foundation for incredible innovations in the financial services industry, the clean energy sector, and beyond. So what do we make of this prevailing narrative? Well, here to talk to us about the Bitcoin and energy narratives is Troy Cross. Troy is fellow at the Bitcoin Policy Institute. He holds a PhD in philosophy and is a professor of philosophy and humanities at Reed College. He has been involved in Bitcoin for over a decade now, most prominently working around the question of Bitcoin's present and future environmental impact. Troy, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, John. I'm excited to be here. So we always start the show with getting a sense of how people got into the industry. You tell me your story and I'll tell you mine. Okay. Yeah, the universal question, the greeting of all Bitcoiners. Uh, it was uh, 2011, right around this time of year. Actually, it was a little bit earlier when I first uh, discovered Bitcoin. My girlfriend then, who's now my wife, uh, sent me mm. an article. It's amazing. I did a search, and the first thing that popped up was the white paper. And uh, so I read wow. the white paper. And uh, it, it, I didn't follow a lot of it, but it was super intriguing. Mm. And um, yeah, I was just telling your staff, I finished grading this morning, just before this call. Uh, and I was in the same situation then, finishing grading. Right. And uh, everything else sounds really good right about that time of year. Right. Uh, and I just, uh, I plunged into the Bitcoin Talk forums, which was the place to, to go and talk about Bitcoin at the time. And uh, it was a, just a completely fascinating world. I was super skeptical, but I could not escape mm -hmm. my uh, basement. And pretty soon I was mining with every machine in the house and then running out to build miners. Is that right? Wow. Yeah. I went to the local electronics store and just put together some purpose-built machines with the GPUs I could get my hands on because my MacBook Airs were not mining uh, fast enough. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and, and trying to get some Bitcoin, trying to buy some Bitcoin, which involved some weird circuitous pathways at the time. Um, right. Uh, like, you know, going on to some multiplayer game and going into like an ATM in the game and exchanging some kind of weird token there for Bitcoin, <laughs> you know, stuff, stuff like that. Wow. Uh, MT Gox too was a place you could go, but that right. took time, it took time to get your, um, to get 
your wire to Japan. And in the time that it would take to get a wire to Japan and get coins at MTGOX, you know, the Bitcoin price could have moved, you know, 300, 400, 500 percent, you know, right, because it was right. skyrocketing from like, you know, two, three dollars up to 27 or whatever. Anyway, I was I was fascinated by the price action, but much, much more. I was fascinated by just the idea and the community. I'm a philosopher. It was a brilliant, brilliant idea. And I was set up to kind of appreciate it because I had looked into e-gold and some other kinds of alternatives and I had done peer-to-peer lending. And so I was disaffected with the current financial system and looking Mm -hmm. for alternatives. And when I saw this as a philosopher, it was just irresistible to, I couldn't not think about it all the time. And, um, and then, uh, and then a couple months in, uh, I, I kind of did the math on how much energy would be consumed by the Bitcoin network if people were mining at marginal profitability with the equipment that I was mining with at the time mm-hmm. with a 50 Bitcoin block reward. And I can't remember exactly what I came up with, but it was enough to shock and horrify me and lead me to mm. um, give away my mining machines to uh, a local nonprofit that teaches program for kids. And uh, I retained my interest in Bitcoin. I stayed kind of tapped into the community online as it moved to Reddit. And but I I stopped mining and I remained ambivalent, I would say, about Bitcoin. I loved the idea. I loved everything about it except the energy use emissions problem. Yeah. And uh, and then, yeah, it basically came back to it a couple of years ago. Uh, more seriously taking a deeper dive and I discovered what you already know all, right. all too well because you do it <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is yeah. you know which is which is that the story is more complicated and we'll get into that and that Bitcoin yeah. could be it, it's a neutral technology which could could be transformative in bringing us into the next energy epoch <laughs> you know yeah so uh, oh, that's my story anyway that's a great that's a great story you know I I've been telling my story recently as well and when I look back, there were three points where I could have gone down the rabbit hole like you did. The first one was I was having lunch with a, a colleague of mine who's actually in, an investor in the, the early days of the company. And he was saying, have you, you know, every now and then sit with me for lunch. And I was running this insurance software company at the time. So I was really deep into the <laughs> trying to get my head around the insurance industry. And he asked me, have you heard about this Bitcoin thing? And I says, well, I've seen a couple of, you know, articles and things out there about it at the time my sentiment around it was negative i'd say because it was just you know most of the article headlines were like who is this satoshi person <laughs> the fbi is looking for satoshi <laughs> you know he said i should really look into it as fascinating technology didn't get into it then and this was around those early days i'd say you know 2011 2010 probably around the time you were reading the white paper 2017, I think 2016 was the f- second time I heard it. One of my co-founders was thinking about creating sort of a exchange-traded fund around cryptos, and he was going to partner with someone to do it. And I, I said, "Hey, this is the second time I've I've heard this thing. Explain to me how it works." And he explained the computer science aspects of it to me, and I was really fascinated. Like something just sparked in my, you know, in my cranium at that moment, but I didn't necessarily 
you know, dig into it at that time. I was taking a break or about to take a break. And then we were focused on selling our business. And after I sold the business, took a, about a year off, um, the CEO of this company, um, of Saluna Holdings, had reached out to me. We've known each other for many years. And he said, I'm, I'm working on something. It's a, it, you know, I, I'd like you to come see it. And I says, well, your private equity firm only invests in industrial companies. You know, what does that have to do with me? I'm a software guy. And he says, well, you got to come in. It has something to do with renewables and Bitcoin and blockchain, actually. And But just come in and take a look at it. And I said, I know I've heard about blockchain and I've also heard about Bitcoin. And that's three times in a row. <laughs> I better go in and look at it. And that was when I sort of got sucked in. And I eventually read the white paper on a plane ride to the Bitcoin Miami conference where the Saluna team met you recently. That was my first trip there in top, you know, January 18. And I was amazed, both from a computer science perspective, from a you know, digitization of money perspective from a like, wow, they solved a lot of interesting problems here, you know, that we've been, we were trained in university that were unsolvable. It was just fascinating. So that's my, that's my entree to, into, into Bitcoin. I that's probably should have that's great. jumped I mean, into it that first time I heard it, you know? Well, I, I, I have this crazy luxury of being a professor and having this end of year and summer to do research Right. And so I was it was really a luxury and it was luck that I discovered yeah. it. But um you know f people will tell you uh that if you had bought into Bitcoin earlier either purchasing it or just getting interested that you still would have you still wouldn't be rich and they're correct and I can attest to that. <laughs> because it's very hard to uh to hold yes hold uh, it for for that long right yeah it, exactly. it, it is right so exactly. i yeah. i bought i bought uh bitcoin and mined it on you know in that kind of uh around ten dollars on the run up to ten dollars and then well past it and it yeah it, I, and i even bought all the way up to like 27 dollars in these small amounts yeah and then i watched it crash down to three dollars and stayed right. there for like two years right, <laughs> right. so now right. i i see i see price action and i have to say my Mentality is very, very different from people who are just coming into this space. Exactly. exactly. I really did think like, oh, well, that was an interesting experiment. You know, everybody, right. uh, you know, everybody was right. I even like I thought there would be a 98 percent, 99 percent chance of failure of Bitcoin at that point. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you have to update your probabilities with time. And that's right. And now that's it's right. like this is this is not going anywhere. If you think it's just going to go away. uh you're you're wrong. It's a decentralized right. technology. It's been attacked as much as you can attack a thing at every level, socially mm -hmm. and you know, in terms of the network <laughs> being attacked. Um, it, it's not going away. Yeah, there's this article I've been meaning to write. Maybe 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 you'll write it, or maybe we'll write it together. Which is kind of around the mental model, the Lindy effect, right? Where yeah. you have an innovation, it sort of is around. And everybody's like, this thing's not going to be around for, for, for very long. Then it's still around. <laughs> and it keeps persisting. And the more it persists, actually, the more likely it is to continue to be around. And what's interesting is that being an innovator, I'm constantly going in and getting people to remove what they've invested in. That's sort of like the thing that's going to be around forever and saying, no, it's actually not that. It's this new thing. <laughs> and what I realize is that I've been fighting against the Lindy effect all my life. Basically, I go in and tell and convince people who've been running technology for 15, 20 years and saying there's this new technology that's better than that, you know? 
And they're like, no, nah, that's just, that just doesn't make any sense. And so every time I hear people saying, what is this Bitcoin thing and what is it good for? I'm, you know, I just keep saying, well, you've been saying that for 13 years. <laughs> it's good there, for something. <laughs> you know what? There is an essay here and I can see it in my head already. There's basically yeah. a two-dimensional graph where one dimension is Lindy, right? Mm -hmm. And the other dimension is kind of revolutionary as tech. And exactly. what you want to do is kind of maximize along both dimensions. That's right. Yeah, and you know, exactly. most it, it, there's like a general correlation. <laughs> revolutionary is not Lindy. Lindy is not revolutionary. You want to find something that kind of optimizes along both. And you could make the case right. that Bitcoin is kind of in that sweet spot right now. It is. It is. Yeah. There's definitely definitely one here. I, okay, I, we got an essay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm down. I'm down. So talk about philosophy. How did you get into philosophy? Why philosophy? It, it, it's I, I think I always was a philosopher. Uh, you know, before <laughs> I before I don't mean that in some kind of braggy way. I mean yeah, it in I the it. sense that I was the kid staring out the window in class. Right. And right. Um, always my dad, when we were working, saying, hey, get your head out of the clouds. We're working here. Uh, right. But my head really was in the clouds and I was chasing down these chains of inferences and just I had a, you know, I had a wild imagination. And then I found philosophy and it was like, oh, there's other people out there like me, like, except yeah, way like me. smarter and better. And there's a whole history of human beings doing the thing that I just do, which is a kind of daydreaming about ideas, it, mm. except they do that like in this really rigorous way. Mm. And, uh, you know, testing each other at extremes. I realized I was just a rank amateur reinventing uh, ideas in a really shoddy way. Mm. And, um, you know, it's also something I'm good at when you discover you're good at something and people tell you you're good at it. I mean, the very first philosophy class I had, my prof said, you know, you should become a philosophy professor. And I was like, no way. Uh, but here I am. <laughs> it ended up happening. Yeah. I love ideas. I can't stop them. I can't help, but have them. And philosophy mm. is a space. I just have to say, I'm so grateful I'm uh, so grateful to have been given the opportunity to do this thing that all of us do. We're all philosophers, really. We just get yeah. busy. But when given free time and leisure and you see it online, right, people start thinking. That's right. It happens on yeah. Twitter. And it's, all, it's constant, right? And I, I'm just really fortunate to basically have like a, a patron, which is, you know, the university system <laughs> that's right. allowed me to do what you naturally do <laughs> to, to do it. Yeah. It's, it's been really, yeah. really wonderful. I'm, I'm taking a year of leave. Uh, I just, my leave was just approved just to work on Bitcoin stuff. Uh, I'll be teaching one class huh. on philosophy of money next year and uh, new, a new class. And yeah, I'm now kind of contemplating like, do I leave the Academy and go into this thing? <laughs> um, right. Uh, or do I just take a year? And I I don't know, but I, 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 I love philosophy, certainly. And yeah, it's the kind of thing that gave me the leisure and the perspective to see this amazing idea of Bitcoin and appreciate it, right? And, and of course, now we have a whole new set of philosophical questions that are created by Bitcoin. And mm. the friends of mine in philosophy are thinking about those. And as a philosopher, that's exciting to me. What is this? How does this change things, if at all? this invention, Bitcoin. That's awesome. So as a philosopher, both personally and professionally, I imagine you have a unique perspective on Bitcoin and how do you approach this sector given that perspective? What insights do you think your philosophical perspective gives you? Well, I, I don't know. I don't know that it does really. <laughs> I mean, I haven't really brought to bear my philosophical knowledge, my background, 
Um, but I do think it gave me leisure. And I'm also, I don't have to, because I'm in the academy, I don't have to make money. So I'm mm -hmm. not beholden to anyone <laughs> in a way. That's a kind right. of freedom. Uh, I'm not, I'm not, you know, just pumping my book because I don't really have a book. <laughs> so I've got yeah. this freedom to think. Um, but also ideologically, I do not align myself with uh, the philosophical ideas that a lot of Bitcoiners do. Uh, the mm. philosophical political ideas, a lot of uh, Bitcoiners are libertarians. Uh, right libertarian seems to be the most common sort of political philosophy. Right. Uh, I see Bitcoin in a much more expansive way. Uh, this is something that philosophy gave me. I don't see Bitcoin wedded to any particular philosophical viewpoint. It's an amazing technology that right. en enables different kinds of uh, different kinds of activities and achievements and goods uh, for human beings and for groups and and for governments. And I think we should be as open-minded as possible about the full scope of those possibilities. And something about being a philosopher is I, I didn't just walk in with a, a given set of political views and say, this is what Bitcoin is and kind of brand it and limit it to that. Mm -hmm. But being a philosopher, I, I kind of know that every philosophical set of beliefs that I've ever heard is riddled with holes. And, you know, that's kind of my job as a philosopher is to find those holes and poke them in any kind of system. And of mm. course, the political philosophies that are well worked out, they all have counterexamples, holes, they all have absurdities, contradictions, they're, they're difficult to realize in the real world. And so it's weirdly, the fact that I'm a philosopher makes me less likely to get captured by a philosophy and allows me ah, to see more see. possibilities. And actually, that's kind of why I think I was able to see something about Bitcoin and the environment and energy, mm -hmm. why I was able to come up with this idea because I am an environmentalist. I've uh, I've done a lot of uh, you know giving, but also kind of campaigning for uh, things like divestment at this college. I led the dis faculty discussions on that question. Yeah, and I'm a Bitcoiner, and I, both of those are in my Twitter profile. <laughs> and people will say like, "How can you have both of those? They don't they don't put it quite <laughs> they don't put it in those terms, right? It's much more severe the terms they put in. It. It's like, right, right. They call right. me names. They're and more aggressive me, about it. Probably you know, they tell me I'm 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 insincere in one or right, the other of right. those commitments, right? But the thing about being a philosopher is you, you see there's no intrinsic connection between environmentalism and anti-Bitcoinism or, or vice versa. And that allows you to think creatively in the way that, you know, you, you have with your company, right? You're, mm -hmm. you're stepping into a role that people don't expect. Right. And, and, and that's where there's margin. That's where there's alpha. That's where there's wisdom is in seeing beyond the little blinkered conceptual boxes that people have locked themselves into. Right. And, uh, and, and yeah, I think philosophy just, it wasn't some particular piece of knowledge, but it was like being able to try on other positions and then look at v Bitcoin through those lenses, multiple lenses. And that's just something you train to do as a philosopher. Yeah. Has that benefited you in your role at the Bitcoin Policy Institute? Tell us about that. What, what the role does there and its role in the, in the industry? Well, I'm I'm really happy to be at this uh, fledgling think tank. We we spun up uh, pretty recently. I think maybe maybe uh, March or so is when this thing got started, and then it's mm -hmm. been scaling. It's a collection of really interesting people from a diverse set of backgrounds, 
Uh, there's some other philosophers there with me, economists, uh, policy analysts. Um, you know, it's a, a variety of experts. And our uh, goal is to bring really solid information and analysis to public discourse surrounding Bitcoin. Um, yeah. So we want to be we want to be truthful. Um, and uh, you know <laughs> this as well as anyone. Uh, we have a serious problem of the truthfulness of reporting on Bitcoin and right. the political discourse around Bitcoin. And it's going to lead to bad policy uh, mm -hmm. if policy mm -hmm. is uninformed and the public is uninformed. Right. So our yeah. goal is to uh, have discussions with uh, with journalists, to put out our own research, to put out um, to do some basic research ourselves, but also to collate and present the relevant research and just the facts about the protocol to fact check claims that are made either by politicians or journalists with the goal of building up these relationships over time so that, you know, before lawmakers write a letter and 20 people sign on, it's full of misinformation. Maybe they will check us with us beforehand and run a draft of the letter by and say, are there any factual mistakes in here? Or maybe uh, journalists will do the same thing before running a totally misinformed piece in the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or the Guardian. Maybe they will just check and, um, that's the role we'd like to step into. And to some extent, we are already stepping into, but it's going to grow a lot. We're growing at a very fast rate right now. That's that's fantastic. Congratulations on that. I have seen some of the material that uh, BPI is putting out and the folks that it's attracting and it's uh, it's it's impressive. Um, we, we just we just wrote a response uh to a request for information. Margot Paez uh, and I wrote this uh, 10-page response to the Office of Science and Technology Policy. They had a series mm -hmm. of questions about Bitcoin's uh, impact on the environment, not just Bitcoin, but other cryptocurrencies. Yep. You know, and we posted that 10-pager. If your listen listeners are interested, it's posted on the BPI website. And you know, it's nothing that's going to be shocking to hardcore Bitcoiners, but it's going to be shocking for, for a lot of people who have been misinformed. You know, uh, we make the case Indeed. for Bitcoin's uh, value, much as the way you did in your intro. Uh, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's economic value, it's value in terms of American values, uh, inclusion and mm -hmm. fairness. Uh, and, uh, and we make the case for its value to our uh, national interests. Mm -hmm. And then we outline its actual negative environmental externalities, which are not zero. Mm -hmm. And then we turn to a discussion of the possibilities that Bitcoin holds for uh, for accelerating the transition uh, to renewable-based uh, economy. That's great. Well, I, wanted, I do want to dig into, into that. And I know you've done a number of talks on this topic, and it certainly... Uh, you're, you're you're gaining you're gaining an audience. I know you you know you're a philosopher, but people are following you. <laughs> I'd, I'd like to ask you to do the same thing here, but do it somewhat a different way. So there's a th there's a view that I have, and that is that Bitcoin and crypto is really the first technology, probably in a long time, that the average person really has a hard time getting their heads around. Like, what is this thing? <laughs> you know. How does it work? What? Why are you guys so fascinated with the technological aspects of it, and why is that so great? And ultimately, that leads to whether the externalities are positive or negative, right? And so, for right. for some listeners out there who are novices, that's the twist I'd like to add here 
that may not understand the positive externalities, it's easy for them to get the negative ones, right? Because those hit their feeds, <laughs> however they get their news, etc. You know, the positive externalities of Bitcoin, they may be leading into that FUD, right? Because it's so easy to do so. Your feed is self self-fulfilling. <laughs> If you yes. pause for a minute on an article that says Bitcoin is destroying the world, well, you're going to see more articles like that, right? So yeah. can you give those people who hopefully our podcast will drop into their feed a brief overview of your take on Bitcoin's impact on our environment? And maybe what are some common misconceptions that are of what the actual potential is in your own opinion? Well, let me start with, first of all, Bitcoin's value, which if you don't understand it, there's really no point to going on. Mm -hmm. And I'll just say very nothing profound or original on this point, but the basic features of the protocol that make it valuable are its uncensorability, its openness, and uh, mm -hmm. the limited supply of Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. So those features allow Bitcoin to store value for anybody, anywhere in the world it has an internet connection. Mm -hmm. uh, and that means they can avoid inflation if they so choose. Yes, there'll be some volatility, but you can avoid inflation if your currency is inflating and your wages are dropping. You can save some money in Bitcoin. You can also make payments to anybody you want to make payments to in the world. And no one can stop you from making those payments because the only intermediary between you and the person receiving the payment is a, a system of, of nodes. And uh, those nodes are algorithmically controlled and they don't know who you are and they're not going to censor your transaction. And, 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 uh, so your, your payments are unstoppable. There's no government or bank between parties. And that's valuable. And right. in order to achieve that permissionless, censorship-resistant payment network, the limited supply of, of a digital asset, Bitcoin burns energy, uses energy, uses energy to, to mine. And so that's energy use is inherently linked to Bitcoin. Bitcoin cannot be done without energy use. It wouldn't be Bitcoin. That's its security mechanism. That's how uh, the distributed ledger of Bitcoin, which is on every node, syncs up together, syncs up via energy use. And so we start there. And in my conversations with people, it always goes to narratives. It always goes to stories. How could that be useful for someone? A lot of people right. in the US can't understand how that could be useful. Because yes. we have access to pretty good money. Uh, the US right. dollar, great money. And if, if you're worried about the dollar inflating, you know, you can just buy index funds through your broker. And those do a pretty good job of balancing out the uh, inflation of the dollar. Or you can buy real estate or whatever. So right. we, have ways of, we have ways of avoiding inflation. And we also don't get censored in our attempts to pay people very much. <laughs> but right. it's very different for people around the world. Uh, you know this, but you know Bitcoin's uh, trading correlates very tightly with um, monetary oppression and just oppression generally. Hmm. So it's a it's a lifeline to people, and I I frankly don't think Bitcoin would be worth that much if we had really good governments and really good banks, and they didn't spy on us and they didn't print money out of control. Like if if the world were running in this utopian fashion. Bitcoin would be worth very, very little. Bitcoin philosophically would correspond to what we call non-ideal theory in political philosophy. <laughs> it's, 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 it's built to protect us from, uh, to put a curb on the ways that money can be abused rather than itself being an ideal money. 
In other words, it's a it's a technology that is that only has use. It it, it only has utility because we don't live in a utopia. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's Basically. exactly right. Yeah, the yeah. anti. Yeah. And, and then in terms of how much energy does it use and will this destroy the world? Okay, wow, misconceptions. I want to try to keep this brief. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we could do the whole show on this, as you know. <laughs> I know, it's um, going to do a whole thing. Yeah. The number one misconception is probably people don't know about the having. Right. I think once you learn about the having, you realize that Bit- Bitcoin's uh, issuance... Actually, let me back up. Mm-hmm. Before we even get to the having... <laughs> Bitcoin's issuance is fixed. Mm-hmm. It's 900 Bitcoin a day, roughly. And that that issuance is fixed through the difficulty adjustment. If if more energy comes onto the network, uh, more hashing comes onto the network, then uh, blocks will be found faster than every 10 minutes, and the, the algorithm will readjust the difficulty, and then blocks will be found at 10 minutes again. And 900 yeah. Bitcoin a day will be mined. So yeah, let's see. Number one misconception is that we have a fixed supply and it's algorithmically fixed. So for lawmakers, for instance, there is no policy they can pass that will decrease the amount of Bitcoin mined in the world. It's going to be exactly 900 before and after their law. It might vary, you know, in the very, in the, in this near term after they pass a law. It hits the wire, right? (laughs) Yeah. It might, they might suppress they might go in and turn off a bunch of miners as China did when they banned mining and they might suppress hash rate a little bit. It's going to bounce right back and we're going to be at 900 a day. So if you think about say changing Bitcoin's emissions profile, you you realize that the, the, the two most common sort of tools in the toolkit for policymakers, which are kind of in enforce property rights would be one, you know, allow people to sue for externalities. Um, and the other is regulate or tax the 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 externality, like tax mm-hmm. the carbon, tax the energy use. Neither of those tools will work for Bitcoin. Bitcoin is almost perfectly designed to escape the regulator's toolkit. Those mm-hmm. 900 a day are going to keep coming out. And so you have to ask what is going to happen when you ban Bitcoin mining. Um, that 900 a day will continue to be mined. Where will it be mined? And how will that affect the total global emissions uh, of the Bitcoin network? That's, I would say that's the number one uh, misconception, that we're going to ban Bitcoin mining in some part of the world or other, or maybe even three quarters of the world, and somehow put a dent in the emissions. When in fact, the effect can be the exact opposite. If you ban Bitcoin mining in a region that is less carbon intensive uh, than average, you will increase Right. the emissions associated with Bitcoin. I think that's the most sort of gr- grotesque misunderstanding. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. And then I would say the halving. Uh, people don't understand that, you know, in two years, we're going to drop from 900 Bitcoins a day to 450 a day. So the revenue of Bitcoin mining is uh, it's going to fall in half unless unless we have an increase in price or the fee market comes alive. Right. So people, when they scale up uh, Bitcoin to a hyper-Bitcoinized future, uh, they they simply scale Bitcoin with uh, either with transactions, that's very common, or right. or with uh, sort of uh, market cap. But it, it doesn't. You, you, you have to double Bitcoin's value every four years just to keep mining revenue the same in dollar terms. 
because otherwise it's having. Right. Um, that's a hard concept to explain to people. There's, there's, there's nothing like this in the physical world that is algorithmically fixed in supply mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. on a having schedule. Right. right. So there's just, there's those just are just like two this. fundamental features of the protocol that strike people as just totally out, you know, like alien and it is alien. There's yeah. nothing like it. Gold isn't like that. Oil isn't like that. Um, if, 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 if you mine uh, a Bitcoin in New York, you make it harder for anybody to mine a Bitcoin anywhere in the world. There's 900 Bitcoins for all the miners in the world per day. If you take some off the table, that makes it harder for a miner in China or Kazakhstan. To, there's less for them to mine, right? That's mm -hmm. a notion that really is bizarre because when you dig up some gold in, in Alaska, you don't make gold harder to dig up in South Africa. Right. right. Exactly. <laughs> okay. That's not that not a great answer to your question because I didn't really take on the FUD, but if I'm drilling down on like where the misunderstandings start conceptually, they don't understand the protocol, the having right. the fixed issuance, right? And then That's other right. problems like stem from that. Well, then we go to like, you know, then we go to other problems like current usage, emissions associated with usage, and then potential for the future non-rivality i can tap into any of those if you'd like right if you'd like i mean if i could briefly just kind of sketch out a picture you you're the expert here you could correct me if i'm wrong mm -hmm. or nuance this picture but i mean here's what i see happening in the mm -hmm. in the near future i think your industry is sitting on very very nice margins right now because of the run-up we've had in price and because of bottlenecks in asics and bottlenecks in power mm -hmm. infrastructure Mm -hmm. And uh, so you're able to mine Bitcoins for quite a bit less than a Bitcoin. And that takes, that makes ASICs very expensive. And because ASICs are very expensive, you have to run them w almost around the clock in order to make money because otherwise they'll depreciate too fast. Hmm. And I see, you know, I, I mean, this is, this is accepting your demand response kind of uh, attenuation or interruption. But the future, and I don't know the timescale on which we hit this, it seems very clear to me that this is not going to last. You know, with Intel coming out with their miners, with just those margins on mining machines, we're going to see, uh, we're going to see a lot of machines hit the market. We're going to see a lot of uh, sources of energy get tapped that are currently not being tapped, whether that's uh, flare gas, which there's enough there to run the whole network five times over or, you know, landfill gas or uh, gas from farms or gas from wastewater treatment facilities. That's all even in the gas thing. Or then if it's in the electrical market, it's, mm -hmm. um, it's negatively priced energy. It's that energy that's only available a very limited amount of time of the day in certain regions. We're going to see mining margins squeeze. CapEx is going to drop. Machines are going to be cheap. And those machines are going to park themselves out and exploit all of this super cheap, nearly free energy. And then it will be impossible to make money plugging in your miners unless, you know, if, if you don't have energy that's that cheap. Right. At, at that point, Bitcoin is going to play an incredibly powerful role. It'll be completely non-rival in the sense that it'll only take energy that nobody else is interested in. Mm -hmm. um, that's almost true by definition for free or negative energy. That's, that's free because nobody else wants it. And once Bitcoin is working on that, the hash rate's going to continue to spike 
but the emissions are going to be emissions associated with that hash rate are going to be extremely low. It's going to be converting methane into CO2, which is a wonderful thing for the atmosphere. It's going to be using excess solar and excess wind. And, uh, uh, you know, new machines will be, will be, have higher uptimes, but they'll be behind the meter at renewable facilities, which are producing the cheapest power. And they'll be in participating in demand response programs, which, you know, cuts carbon emissions and allows the network to function as a, as a whole in a more decarbonized way. So I see the future for Bitcoin mining playing this, I call it the dung beetle role, <laughs> eating the waste energy that the rest of the economy is not interested in and really only surviving with that ultra cheap energy. I think right. we're in a little time bubble, back to misconceptions. We're in a little time bubble where you can just plug into a coal plant and still make money mining Bitcoin. You can make money mining with coal. Not for right. long. Coal is a very expensive source of energy. Pretty soon, right. that's just not going to cut it. And 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 journalists are missing this and politicians are missing this, right? I don't, yeah. They can't see through the these one-off anecdotes about a fossil fuel miner uh, keeping keeping a plant alive in the Midwest or in, in Kentucky or in Montana. They can't see right. through that to the future that's about to hit us, which is right. almost completely non-rival consumption. Nobody's energy bills are going to go up because of Bitcoin. They're going to go down. Hmm. Emissions are going to be virtually nil and in many cases negative. And uh, that's, we, I don't know how far we are from that. It depends on how serious these bottlenecks are. Right. But that's the future that I see for Bitcoin, which is uh, enor enormously positive for the whole energy system. Yeah, no, that's that's a great tour, and I think you've, I mean, you've taken it all the way to the to the end game. You know, this could create a version of Bitcoin that basically has Bitcoin not in the news, where we don't talk about it. We don't really talk about the TCP/IP protocol, which underpins pretty much everything we do in the whole planet at this point, right? The internet, including Bitcoin. And there's lots and lots and lots of infrastructure that's all around the world using energy to power just about every application, every communication platform, you know, social networks, etc. And it went from being at the forefront where we talk about it all the time, but now it's just generally assumed. It's 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 part of the 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 background noise, if you will, of the university, right? Bitcoin that's, has the potential to do that if it basically reaches a scale that's integrated with renewables, right? At such a level that the Bitcoin infrastructure, the Bitcoin mining infrastructure that's securing this vast global network will just become invisible. It will be part of the global grid infrastructure, make the grid more green. And the FUD will just fade away because the world didn't end. That is effectively what you just said. Would you agree? That's if we can get through the next two years, then I think the vision will start to become clear. Yeah. My hope is that by in two years' time, major energy companies will start seeing what Bitcoin can do for them hmm. um, in terms of you know balancing their load and helping them reach higher levels of renewable penetration. And once we get the big energy companies on board, and they can see it. They already have the, they have a different kind of relationship with Washington and with media 
they can right. you know they can say like look in order to reach our our targets we want we want to hit targets by 2030 that are pretty aggressive uh, we're going to need a lot of flexible load uh, we're going to need uh, we're going to need a lot of flexible load gigawatts of it to be exact yeah we're going to need 10x according to the yeah. IEA we're going to need to 10x our flexible load by 2030 that's only that's really that's coming up that's seven and a yeah. half years away right. so how are we going to that's 10x right. flexible load by then and yeah. it, that's yeah. not and that's not counting you know that's not including um, the you know the role of storage and that's right. not including the role of other kinds of flexibility right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so and then what do we need to do by 2050 we need to 20 exit <laughs> so these are really ambitious targets um and and my hope is that we will get people in yeah we started with misunderstandings but actually talking to people and maybe you're you you i've i've heard i've heard you testify before congress so you've done this right i'm just kind of giving you your strategy back but i think it is much more I think it is much more effective to start where people are at and right. then tell them what Bitcoin can do for them rather than starting on the back foot like, hey, do you know about the halving like I just did? Do, right, you, know right, about, right. do you know about fixed issuance? It's like, no, let me start where you're at. You, yeah. you want to be at, you want a 10x flexible load by right. 2030. And then now you can just tell them how amazing flexible load exactly. Bitcoin is. Uh, talking to, I was talking to a guy yesterday uh, in an energy company, and he said, comparing Bitcoin to other flexible loads is like, it's like comparing uh, a Bitcoin international payment to a fiat wire transfer international payment. <laughs> He's right. like, it's in terms of how cumbersome the fiat payment is, and in terms of how cumbersome other forms of demand response and the restrictions on them, whereas this, you have this completely sort of algorithmic control or automated yeah. control of, of Bitcoin in a fine-grained and very fast way. So that I was like, yes, that's the testimony we need. We we need lawmakers to hear, but also, you know, the 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 press. It's I'm sure you encounter this. People cannot understand how adding load could be decarbonizing. They cannot get past they that. They don't they don't get it. Yeah. Yeah, maybe um, you could answer it because you're you, this is what you do. You're 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 the CEO of Saluna. Uh, I mean, like what Here's the question. How can you decarbonize by adding load? I mean, th there's two ways to look at it. You're not just adding load. You're adding flexible load. So if you add that flexibility in the right locations, you can increase the amount of green power plants you can add to the grid and sunset legacy fuel plants, okay, giving the grid more green electrons to 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 power the system that reduces uh, co2 emissions that's the problem the problem is how do you add more green energy without destabilizing without decreasing the resilience of the grid by adding more flexibility to it the only way to do that is not to just put giant load centers on the grid because that just increases the demand for base load to serve them. It's to add more intelligent load that has a direct connection to the grid's needs at any, any given time and to add load that's highly responsive to that information, that signal that says, hey, I need, I need more or less of you right now. And that allows us to balance the input of these new intermittent resources that are very, very scalable, very, very inexpensive over time that can power the entire grid system on a global basis. We learned this concept by 
you know, tinkering and, and, and working through the issue ourselves, you know, trying to build a, a facility in, in southern Morocco that had that problem. You had a place where it needed green green energy. It wanted to become more energy secure. But if you just start at adding power plants everywhere, there's no load to match them. How are you going to convince investors to invest? <laughs> so, but you want to add a, you, you you want to add a, a, a certain amount that matches where the economy is right now. But over time, you know, have the system grow into it. And the only way to do that is to uh, add a different type of load that is integrated with the energy resource that integrates in a special way that that understands that it's part of a grid system that needs that sort of balancing and fluidity and flexibility, but at the same time, not decreasing the resilience of it, right? The scale of it, et cetera. That's how you do that. And, and if you do that, is more green electrons on the grid? Well, that reduces CO2 because you're turning off coal mines, you're turning off gas plants, you're turning off a lot of things that put CO2 in the atmosphere. Okay. Can I ask you two more questions? <laughs> Sure. Um, I'd love to make this interview go the other way. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, So uh, there's two two forms of FUD that come come back at this point. Yeah. Wow. Do I ever want to get you in a room with some of the uh, some of the energy experts on energy Twitter? Um, Here's one. Yeah. Well, what we're seeing right now is that we're seeing fossil fuel plants, you know, far from far from shuttering. We're seeing them kept alive right now by Bitcoin mining. How do you respond to that? Yeah, I would say that's that that's a shame. <laughs> that's sad. I've I've seen it, and I've talked to some of the systems operators and states where it's happening. And I think we need incentives that disincentivize that to happen because it it decreases the chances that that particular grid system can be converted to you know larger and larger degrees or penetration of green electrons. And that is not a, you know, taking a step back, it's not a philosophical thing about the industry. And I think that's the misconception is that, you know, people run businesses, they have economic drivers. And so they saw this resource as a way to build their business and compete in this, you know, global 900 Bitcoin per day (laughs) business. And so they went after that opportunity. But if the industry moved to more of an, an alignment of a larger mission, which is how can we make money, be successful as an industry, but at the same time do something good for the planet, then we would change our strategy in terms of what resources we go after because we can still build viable businesses going after green resources versus you know, uh, legacy fuel-based ones. Yeah, I, I completely, uh, I completely agree with you. And uh, yeah, I, I think back to the fixed supply, right? Yeah. Uh, in terms of incentives, I don't recommend that the state do this, but if the state wanted to end mm-hmm. mining with fossil fuel, it mm-hmm. wouldn't their their straightest path to this would actually be to subsidize mining or to mine themselves in the way that they would like mining to be, thereby adding hash rate, thereby driving up difficulty, thereby driving down margins. That limited, that 900 a day is not going up. So if the state were to incentivize the kind of mining they want, they would basically increase the margins for the mining that they want. And 
uh, it's a zero sum game, you know, it's a zero sum for that 900. So they would thereby, I I think it's more efficient than, uh, I think it's the most efficient way they could go about things. Although it's going to be very, very hard for them to grasp this idea (laughs) because it's also states don't get, you know, they're not operating entities, right? Their, their policy. (laughs) That's right. That's right. But they do have like, so for instance, Wyoming has a tax break for, mining on flare gas uh, right. sites. Yeah. And you know, billions that's of dollars a, have gone into that place in that regard. Yes. Yeah. That's a I mean, flare gas mining is controversial because it's Indeed unclear. It is. You know, it's I'm unclear not. whether yeah, whether uh you stopping methane has got to be the most most important thing in right, exactly. In the world right now. But but also at the same time people worry that it's going to prolong the Right, it's going to prolong the, the extraction it, of fossil fuels. Exactly, that's that's the that's the that's the that's the that's the, the But yeah. but in terms of the model, there's there's Wyoming with an incentive for a certain kind of mining, and so they are pushing mining in the direction that they want it. Whether or not that's the direction other people want it, that's you know, it's a it's a it's a model out there. Uh, but I think yeah, I'd love it. I'd love it for lawmakers were actually thinking. In terms of rather than like let's ban Bitcoin, which is their broad, super broad brush, uh, right. which we've already said would be completely ineffective. It's something like how do we actually change the environmental impact of Bitcoin? Right. Uh, that would be like it, saying let's ban the let's ban the internet. You know. Exactly. And back to your point about it being boring. Yes, my goal for Bitcoin is for it to be completely uninteresting. Nobody cares like, about it. I mean, like people don't even. Nobody cares. It's like plugging in to your socket yeah. i'm you know electricity mm-hmm. was a big deal you know going back farther uh electricity yeah. <laughs> in every home right oh my it was very controversial right it's, very it's controversial gonna, like yeah exactly it's gonna kill people it's it's unhealthy yeah. uh you know yeah. and and now it's like nobody ever even has a thought about it and my nobody hope is thinks that about it. you plug in your toaster and it's like boom you're you're good to go yeah that's that's kind of the the dream and the yeah. idea that I had that brought me back into Bitcoin and made me go public, because actually I do like my privacy and I liked being completely off the radar, which might be hard for you to believe now, but I like being completely <laughs> off the radar. Uh, why I went on to Twitter and started trolling people was um, because I had this idea about how to offset the incentive that you provide uh, to, right. to, to miners by doing some mining yourself. Yeah, I want to. I want to. I want to dig into that. And you were alluding to that when you when you said the state should just start mining. You know, that's exactly that's, that's one way to dis- disincent. Because your point is, since the amount of Bitcoin that is created every day or mined every day is fixed, if the more you add miners, the less of that is going to each individual miner. So you're creating, you're pulling away from them, right? Which increases yeah. dec- increases their their costs or decreases their margin, if you will, and that disincentivizes it. Um, but but take a step back like you wrote a paper on this it's called greening bitcoin with yeah. incentive with offsets that addresses this basically you know the intense nature of bitcoin and proposes an innovative solution kind of a new way to invest in bitcoin if you if you will right why don't you walk us yeah. through that solution a bit i find it fascinating i've been trying to wrap my head around it but i think i, I think i'm starting to get it but i want to hear you explain it again yeah, certainly. It is um, a very unintuitive idea. It's built entirely. <laughs> Don't beat yourself up. You're you know, It is. Okay. It's hard. It's hard to get people get it across to people. Yeah. But I think it's not that hard if you think in Bitcoin terms. <laughs> it's okay. hard because because the fixed supply and how that how that uh, how that manifests. 
in in incentives is hard to grok. Okay. Uh, but yeah, here's how it works. First okay. step is how does how does a Bitcoin holder incentivize mining? Well, what's the relationship between you as just a Bitcoin enthusiast holding some Bitcoin in your wallet or a Bitcoin or a company like Tesla holding Bitcoin on their balance sheet? Right. Or MicroStrategy, how does that relate to carbon emissions? How much carbon emissions is that responsible for? And so the first first part is what I call uh, maintenance accounting. The idea is that um, you're responsible for uh, a certain percentage of mining, and that percentage is equal to the percentage of all Bitcoin you own. So if you own 1% of Bitcoin, then you're kind of causally responsible for 1% of all the mining that's happening right now. It's happening because of you. And the way I reach that is to say, first of all, miners get awarded 6.25 Bitcoin per block in Bitcoin. That's their block reward. Or that's mm-hmm. their uh, sub block subsidy. And that's only worth something because people are willing to buy it. Right. And um, the market sets that value. And the thing, the reason why the price of Bitcoin is not zero is because people are holding it. People are buying and holding it. If, uh, if any, any of us holders at any time dumped our Bitcoin, we would push Bitcoin lower than it is in the order book right now, mm-hmm. bump down the order book. So basically, right. by not selling at each moment, we're keeping Bitcoin higher price than it would be. And you can right. think of that in a very complex way, marginally, like what would be my marginal impact on price at every moment were I to sell, given the liquidity that's on the exchanges? That's like an impossible problem, a very, very hard problem. But there's an easy way to think about it, which is just that all non-sellers are fungible. Any of us could sell at any time, and we're not distinct from each other. And so the total price where it is, is on, it's on all of us holders, and it's on us to, a, to the degree to which or to the degree to which we own Bitcoin. So if you own 99% and I own 1%, then it's 99% your responsibility and 1% mine price. Mm-hmm. So since price is the sole incentive for mining and price is solely set by the buyers and non-sellers, the buyers and holders, they're the ones responsible for the positive side of price, Mm -hmm. price being as high as it is, then the first point to make is your kind of carbon footprint for owning Bitcoin is equivalent to the carbon footprint of the same percentage of all mining as your percentage of all holdings. We call that maintenance accounting. Interesting. And then the second step is, and, and it's because the alternatives are really bad. The other ways of thinking about who's responsible for that carbon are really bad. Like thinking about it in terms of transactions, as Alex DeVries does and other critics, totally misses out on the fact that, you know, 98 something percent of minor income is from the block reward and it's indifferent to transactions. Hmm. Uh, and the other way of thinking about it is to sort of map uh all the carbon to the Bitcoin that is minted at the time that carbon is emitted, right? So my early Bitcoin, for instance, would be, I call this origin accounting. My early Bitcoin in 2011 had almost no carbon footprint to be created, right? So then I could be like holding all this Bitcoin and have like basically no responsibility because I would have green, green coin. I call that origin accounting. I think that's a terrible way to map out the the effects of owning Bitcoin, because right now, hmm. over a decade of holding for me, 
I've kept the price of Bitcoin higher than it would have been. And that has caused miners like you hmm. to look at that price and go to lenders and borrow and buy, buy machines and right. sign, uh, sign contracts and so on, right? So maintenance accounting is step one. A lot of people don't get that. Once you get how much sort of how much emissions you're responsible for as a holder, being the equivalent of the same percentage of all emissions that are, that are coming from mining as your percentage of all holdings, mm -hmm. then the prescriptive side, how do I fix this, is to mine the very same amount of incentive that you are providing to the network. So if you're providing 1% of the incentive to mine, then you should do 1% of mining. If you mm. do that percent, you will create a disincentive to all other miners in proportion to how much you're pushing up difficulty. Right. Mm. So uh, think of it this way. There's two sides to your balance sheet. <laughs> On, uh, I, I say, suppose I'm a holder, you're CEO of Saluna. <laughs> how am mm -hmm. I affecting you? Well, I'm holding some Bitcoin and that's good because I'm driving that price up higher in the order book than it would otherwise be. But mm. I'm also competing with you as a miner. And that means I'm throwing hash rate at the network and that's driving up difficulty for you. So if I can take those two forces, the positive thing I'm doing for you, driving up mm. price, and the negative thing I'm doing to you, which is driving up difficulty for you, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, if I can put those in balance, then... It's like I'm invisible to your balance sheet. I own Bitcoin, mm -hmm. I mine Bitcoin, but you don't see me in the sense that I'm not incentivizing you to mine because I'm providing an equal and opposite disincentive for you to mine by mm -hmm. entering the ring as a competitor. Mm -hmm. That's the overall <laughs> overall goal. And, and uh, now, Troy, just... what I didn't what I didn't get in that first. I'm, first of all, I'm going to play it back. So. What you're saying is that Bitcoin ownership is a signal to the network. Like if you're holding and not selling, then you're signaling to the network that this asset has value and therefore it should be secured. So it draws in participants to the network to provide mining and creation of more of this valuable asset, right? Which allows them to monetize and return capital and gain profit from that process. So it, it generates an industry by just holding the asset. That's right. Now, if you want to, to drive behavior in that support industry, if you will, or secu security part of the industry, then actually you want to participate in the industry as well. In addition to the signal, you want to actually create competition that drives certain behavior. What I was expecting you to say was you actually want to not only mine as well, but you want to mine in the way that you philosophically believe the industry oh. should be going. You should be yes, mining of course. with more yeah, yeah, green yeah. energy in the process because that creates competition for the rest of the industry to go after the same cheap resource, if you will, like this, let's say, you know, wasted energy by generating that, that same pro rata portion of competition, if you will, you force the network participants to do the same thing because competition is good, right? <laughs> And it would, yeah. it would, it'll create the, the right behavior. Right. That's really so, fascinating. Let me just back up a little bit. So, mm. uh, so you're, you're right that, okay, my holding is the price signal, but it's more than a price signal. It's really why you, it's your entire revenue is in terms of this asset. So, mm. it, it, you know, <laughs> it's, if that, if, if I sell and everybody else sells 
there's no business at all because <laughs> you're right, paid right. you're paid in Bitcoin. So yeah, it's a value signal. It, it, it's a value it fundamentally signal. makes the whole system work. Makes right, the whole the system I, work. And yeah. then the other thing is another kind of signal. It's actually a signal for you not to mine, <laughs> because I'm I'm basically t by adding hash rate, I'm changing your calculations of dollars per hash. In other and words, it's disincenting you to hash. Exactly. Because the I'm, difficulty is going up. Exactly. So I'm giving, you two, I'm giving you two incentives and putting them in balance. And then you're absolutely right. If I, if I put those two incentives in balance, then I'm invisible to your business. Mm -hmm. I have made kind of no difference to you in terms of your expected dollar per hash. Because I've decrease the block reward per hash, but I've increased the dollar value of the block reward. Right. So if those two balance out perfectly, which I think our formula does, then I'm invisible to your balance sheet. Then what is my carbon footprint? My carbon footprint comes from, or my environmental impact broadly, comes from the kind of mining that I'm doing. And if I do that with coal, let's say, then I could in, I could have a much higher carbon footprint than I would if I just owned Bitcoin and didn't do any right. mining. But right. if I mine with um, if I mine with let's say solar um, or, wind, yeah. or wind, you know, behind the meter, and I mm -hmm. buy wrecks when I'm taking grid mix, I'm uh, doing better than the the network on average, and then my my own impact is minimal, and I give no incentive to any other miner. And uh, and then you know, so I don't have to. I've I've talked about it in terms of doing the mining myself, but r right now that's very difficult for a lot of people to do. So they might buy equity in a company like yours, and try mm -hmm. to make the calculation about how much and how much uh, hash rate they are incentivizing by s buying a certain amount of Saluna, or you know they could uh, lend to your company in right. the form of a bond that allows you to buy more machines and add more hash rate. Right. Right. Or you could right. sell the mechanism I like best because it's most direct and easiest to fit into the formula is that you could just sell hash rate. You could just sell hash rate. And that'd be some sort of, uh, some kind of future basically. Mm. Uh, used to be called cloud mining. <laughs> um, right, you, right. you know, and then uh, what I'd like to see is I'd like to see you sell hash rate to, you know, Barry Silbert uh, mm -hmm. so that GBTC is, basically incentivizing the same amount of mining, the same percentage yeah. of all mining as they own of all Bitcoin. And then GBTC can say, basically, the only mining that we're incentivizing is John Belazare's. <laughs> and we right. know the carbon footprint of that, and we can tell that story. And that's, you know, it's right. uh, that's a net positive for the environment. Yeah. And, uh, and, and if you want to go carbon negative, then, you know, you just increase the percentage, just mine 2% of the network if you own 1% right, right. of Bitcoin. Double, and double so your barata right. share. Double your pro rata share. Exactly. So th that's the scheme. And then it, mm. it is kind of like the state mining Bitcoin and pushing margins negative for, for, for fossil right. fuel mining, except it's like your share of that. It's like if right. we each individually wanted to do that with no state involved, mm. we could just allocate our, our resources to the kind of mining that we want to see mm. and then make the network the way we want to make it without having to pull the levers of government, without mm. having to have incentives coming from the state at all. And that's actually my preferred way to go. I'm not a statist, even though I'm not a libertarian. I'm also not. I'd, I'd, I'd rather I'd rather you be mining than the state because I'm sure you're going to do a better job of it, right. more efficient. And I also don't really want to try to craft this legislation because I'm sure it's going to be 
perverse in the way that it cooks up the incentive somehow, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I, I think the clearest and best way is for miners to signal what they are doing as transparently and and uh, openly as possible. And now that I'm digging into this space, and here's where you're going to be way more of an expert than I am, you know, yeah. there are so many ways to 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 characterize what you're doing for the energy system and the environment. They don't necessarily map onto neat, you know, ESG metrics because they're right. unique and it's a new industry, right? But if you can mm -hmm. tell that story very clearly and honestly, mm -hmm. then you can sell hash rate or equity or or issue bonds on the basis of your influence on the network and offsetting people's, we call it an incentive offset, offsetting the incentive that other, that Bitcoin owners are sending to other miners. And I'd like to see, I think that there's so many Bitcoin holders and would be Bitcoin holders, literally trillions of dollars that would like to come into Bitcoin, but this is what's holding everybody back. I'm sure you know this too. You yep. encounter this opposition constantly. If we can provide a carbon neutral way for people to hold Bitcoin, you know, without any carbon footprint, uh, where the only impact they make is the mining that they themselves do, uh, then I, I think we we clear the way for a whole new wave of investment, and a lot of the FUD just goes away. You know, you like Bitcoin, you can hold Bitcoin without incentivizing any of this dirty mining. And in fact, if you want to, you can drive out that dirty mining. Yeah. Uh, by adding to the hash rate more than right. more than the Bitcoin you own. And that's the narrative I want to see us grab. It's a hard story to tell. You know, I've struggled to tell it even to you and you're brilliant and running a company. <laughs> right. So it's like, it's, no, it's I want to, I want to, I want to play, I want to play it back, you know, and, and we're probably going to run out of time, but it finally hit me here as you were talking about it. Um, and it's, it's actually brilliant in the sense that it, it, it connects to the entire ESG wave and the capital that's going into ESG, right? So if you think about it, think about all the large financial institutions that want to hold this asset. In fact, customers are calling them and saying, why don't I own Bitcoin in my, in my portfolio? If one of the concerns is that the ESG footprint of the technology and the asset is a challenge, then this could be a incredibly powerful way to make the whole vision we laid out earlier, right, where Bitcoin is sort of, you know, boring, <laughs> happen. And let me see if I can put it all together. So number one, you have more people, you know, people think of it as individuals holding the asset. But fundamentally, when large global institutions start holding the asset, when pension funds start holding the asset, yes. right? So let's say they hold on to it. That sends the value signal, let's not call it pricing signal, just value. This thing is valuable. I'm going to hold yep. it in my, in my portfolio. Now, I need to offset the negative ESG. So I'm going to buy, buy hash rate that's green, basically. Yep. And that hash rate amount that I buy is driven by what percentage of the total 21 million I own, let's say. Yep. And I need to buy that exact amount, which is a signal to the hash rate to go hack, you know, to the, to the miners to enter the industry. There's value here, but do it in a green way. And because that mining industry can now sell that hash rate, call it forward or at, at a fixed price or something like that, that will decrease the cost of capital for the industry, increasing the scale of the industry, the amount of mining that happens, 
And through the benefits of rights law, it's going to get more efficient. <laughs> it's going to integrate to more renewable resources, which is also benefiting from rights law. So suddenly you'll have more and more and more renewables built with Bitcoin mining computing integrated into it. And by the way, these same financial institutions, they're the ones that fund these big energy projects. So when you put those two worlds together, you're basically creating two powerful effects, which I think if this were to happen, would instantly happen. You would have this industry become, you know, reach a global scale, which would solidify the security of the asset. So that value signal would be locked in because the security would would be incentivized to exist, right? And exist persistently. The volatility would come down because there's more holding of the asset. And the ESG effects that we're so worried about would basically be virtually eliminated because we've economically incentivized the industry to do that. And then you have this second order knock-on effects where the green energy that it actually incentivizes to create or to build more of actually solves our other downstream ESG concerns. I think I'm going to have to get a drink after this podcast because yes, this you is got it, John. Right that here. was beautiful. That was beautiful, and and you stepped into, you saw immediately, and stepped into uh, another big part of my thinking, which is what does this do for the mining industry if they start selling hash rate instead of simply selling or holding Bitcoin? Correct. Which is that since that hash rate money is sort of upfront, it's a future. That's right. It's a um, future. Yeah. So since it's up front, this is this improves their ability to purchase uh, yes, power yes, yes. over the longer term because they go to the power yes. company and they're like, "Look, Correct. I've got you know I've got cash on hand, and I've got I basically have a, a a floor under the price of my Bitcoin in the future." So I mean, they're already spoken for. <laughs> yeah. So uh, that's one of the major concerns for, as you know, for getting PPAs is like this is a volatile asset. How can right. I sign a 10-year power agreement to get a new wind farm up and going when this asset may not be here in 10 years or it may be at $50 a Bitcoin. Exactly. And, exactly. Um, you know, this wouldn't make that go away. I don't know what duration these would be, but, you right. know, maybe it's six months, a year. It's still upfront money. And then think about the business model as a as a miner. You, you, you start, you know, selling this product and or Bitcoin, and each miner decides, like, not just right now, the decision is like, do I want to hold Bitcoin and borrow? Or do I want to sell Bitcoin as I go? You know, Iris sells as they go, you know, uh, Marathon stacks. And every miner has got some mix. Um, Riot is like 50-50 last month, right? That's the big decision right now. Yeah. And uh, and then what happens when we hit a price dip like the one we're in? And if it goes lower, Right. Well, you know what happens. Bitcoin yeah. miners uh, start puking out coins. Those <laughs> coins hit the market and yeah. then it's cascading. And then there's margin calls because you've levered up. And then people point to Bitcoin and say, ah, it's too volatile. See? Right. Well, it's volatile because <laughs> we, we borrowed and, and stacked during the yeah, good exactly. times. So yeah. if, if there's, there's another business model here, which is, you know, sell, sell hash rate and offload that risk upside and downside onto yeah. the holders of Bitcoin. They're, they're already comfortable with the risk of Bitcoin because they're holding it. And from their perspective, the percentage of, of the percentage of their total uh, Bitcoin slash mining investment that actually consists of Bitcoin is very small, like a half a percent 
of their total overall holdings because the ratio of market cap to mining over a short period is a huge ratio. So to match that ratio, you don't really need to buy very much hash rate. So they're okay with a little bit of uh, volatility and risk in mm-hmm. that, you know, half percent of their portfolio. It's not, you know, I mean, it's not a big deal. And in fact, it kind of diversifies the risk of their straight up Bitcoin holdings to have a little yeah. bit of mining as well, right? Yeah. So yeah, the not only you beautifully described it, but not not only I'm only a philosopher. I'm only a philosopher. I couldn't do what you just did. I'm not in your world, but <laughs> you know. But I have seen not not only would institutions coming in like pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, uh, stabilize the asset because so much of the volatility is actually created by uncertainty about Correct. whether that yeah. will happen and regulatory uncertainty. Right, right. Right. Get regulatory certainty and institutional buy-in. The number one blockage of that against that is the ESG stuff right now. Right, exactly. You clear that out and then institutions come in and then then you all start selling hash rate as a as some part of your output and that that smooth all of that smooths the volatility mm-hmm. and 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 then once the volatility is smoothed, right, then signing these long-term agreements becomes easier and as you said, just as you said, uh Bitcoin is integrated into the business model for these, uh, these, uh, this new energy build out, we lower your cost of capital. We lower your cost of capital by buying green hash rate, basically. Yeah. Um, that's the that's the vision. It's unorthodox, but once you see it, you can't unsee it. <laughs> no, it, it's it's brilliant, and we've we've had you know a similar philosophy around the concept of hash rate forward. We believe that's that's fundamentally the the asset, and there should be a whole industry around it. It's just getting people to buy into who would take that the other side of that trade. But if it was it, it was fundamental to you know the ownership of the asset itself, protecting its value, but also right. um, protecting its uh, environmental effects on the planet, that could significantly change the uh, yeah. the need for the forward the forward product, right? Because it's there's, yep. a, there's a problem that needs to be solved and the hash rate forward solves it. If you look at what other people are trying to do, they're trying to charge you money for their solutions, right? They'll yes, show, exactly. like Gemini paid uh, for carbon credits to offset yeah. their holdings. And right. you know, I don't blame them or anything. I think it was a great step, but they paid millions of dollars to buy carbon credits. They used, they used the right kind of accounting. Uh, there's other groups out there selling tokens, you know? They're selling yeah. tokens that they really want to give to you a, a buyer of Bitcoin right. will will buy these tokens from you, and then they'll also give them to various environmental groups and to yeah. banks so that they get buy-in, right? It's kind of grease all the palms along the way. What's interesting about this idea I had with Andrew is it does not involve any other tokens. It doesn't right. involve greasing anybody's palms. It just involves Bitcoin itself yeah. and mining in the way you want mining to yeah. be done. And that is going to require a kind of auditing, accounting, you know, a storytelling that's truthful about what kind of hash rate you are buying and a marketplace for that hash rate. And it'd be good to be able to buy and yeah. sell those futures in a liquid and deep market. Right. Yeah. So there's some, there's some, uh, <laughs> there's some financial of, infrastructure that needs to happen. Right. And there are lots of technical challenges that need to be solved because of the hash rate growth and being able to predict that things like that. But you, you have studied to, it. We studied it here at Saluna and. Oh, cool. It's a it's a it's a fascinating thing. It's definitely something that the industry should look into, and the big players coming in into the industry should look into. And I'd go 
one step further and say, and you know what? That's how renewables became so big. They did exactly the same thing. <laughs> there was a, the, you know, the, the, there's rec, there's a rec market. There's, a, yep. you know, PTC incentives from a policy perspective, but there's also forward selling of the energy. You're swapping a volatile or, or you know, um, market driven price for a fixed price. You get less, but you're able to lock in your revenue, which decreases your cost of capital, so you can build more energy pro- projects because <laughs> they get more they get built because it's locked in. So lower cost of capital comes in because these assets are around for a very long time. Yeah, and that's ultimately what Bitcoin miners are. You, this is a subject for another day, but you know, yes. I think how how Bitcoin miners are hitting these really ridiculously high numbers in the uh, Bitcoin Mining Council, you know, reports mm-hmm. is I think. Uh, varied a lot, but it's precisely these kinds of financial agreements, you know, it's wrecks that are making it possible. That's Uh, right. That's exactly right. So there's all sorts of things that that can be done that could drastically change the industry and basically make it boring. It won't be in a new cycle anymore. (laughs) That's the, that's the hope, you know, it just changes the world and, and uh, in such a way that yeah, the biggest revolutions are ones that we don't think about. Exactly, biggest... they they just you just don't think about. It. They just I, I always say don't as, underestimate the power of technology to suddenly creep up on you and change the world. Well, thanks for coming on the show, Troy. This has just been a fascinating philosophical conversation about the future of just about everything. It seems we we touched on a lot of things here. I'd like to shift to our lightning round for a minute. I'm going to ask you two questions. One is okay. favorite books. I'm going, to, I'm going to say philosophy books. If I wanted to get into philosophy, give me one favorite book for that. Oh, man. Oh, this is tough. You know, it's <laughs> tough even though, of course, I've heard it all my life. But it's still so hard. <laughs> Isn't I, that funny? Like when, I would, you, when something, if people ask me energy, I'm like, uh, let's see, you know? Yeah, it, it, I mean, I, it can be I more than it can be more than one. I, just start rattling off. I mean, the I, one. I just have to say it's Plato's dialogues. The, the first thing I picked up off my parents' shelf when I was a senior in high school was a book of Plato's wow. early dialogues, and you just it, 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 it was just a connection across um, millennia and across uh, the globe with another mind that was like mine, and I'll never forget that feeling of Socrates is kind of a jerk, the main character that Plato has, but he was a jerk that made sense to me. And I, I, I fell in love immediately. I, I would say you can't go wrong with Plato's early dialogues. Awesome. Second question is, what do you hope happens this year? We're recording in 2022. What's the one thing you'd love to see come true? Well, I'd really love to see a, I'd love to see a product that's exactly like we described. Something bundling yeah. Bitcoin with green hash rate like yep. an ETP or an ETF that yes. ordinary people, especially retail investors, uh, but also institutional investors could buy in because people are writing me every day. How do I implement your idea? And right, right. now I have not great solutions. They're all indirect. It's like, um, you know, well, if you, you can do hosted mining with a company that then you could buy a machine, but machines are, you know, $8,000 and, one S19J Pro is enough to green 10 Bitcoins worth of holdings, and most people have less than that. Right, right, right. And, uh, and, and, and the game of trying to figure out how much Soluna stock to buy right. to offset your holdings, it's, it's tricky. It's very tricky yeah. accounting, right? And I'm, yeah. and I'm wary of double counting. I'm wary of them. You know, I'm wary of uh, share, shareholders doing this, but also people lending you money. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. You know, so, so 
yeah, I would love to see a product like this actually come to market. That's why I'm in the space. I want to yeah. see something like this actually happen. What impresses me about Satoshi, especially as a philosopher, and what drew me in was here wasn't just an idea about what money is or could be, uh, which you know other people had before, maybe kind of similar to you know to to Satoshi stateless money, limited supply. Those aren't new ideas. But Satoshi engineered it, and then he built up a social group that bootstrapped bootstrapped it into a whatever it is now six hundred billion dollar asset, and yeah. something that is so all of us talking and working on, and me for free. You know, it's just remarkable. Satoshi's remarkable as a philosopher. He built something out of nothing. He built something out of just an idea, and uh, I'm not Satoshi, and I never will be. But this idea about how to invest in Bitcoin in a carbon neutral way is new. It's one of the coolest ideas I've had. And I just had to step out of my private life and engage people on Twitter and wherever I could uh, to get myself precisely into these conversations with people like you who hmm. actually have the wherewithal and the connections to think through this philosophical idea and help to bring it into being. Well, that's a great way to end a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much, Troy. Really appreciate you what, coming. What an show. honor and what what an honor and what a pleasure to talk to you today, John. Thanks for listening. You can find more information on what you've heard today in our show notes. To join our growing community, connect with us on LinkedIn by searching for Saluna and following our corporate page. Or tag us on Twitter. We're at Saluna Holdings. To learn more about Saluna and our innovative projects, visit our website at salunacomputing.com and visit our blog, Clean Integration on Medium. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. It helps boost us in the charts and others to find us. Thank you for listening to Clean Integration, a Saluna podcast. And remember, computing is a better battery. See you next time.